Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Joe Wren. Today we're going to talk about the removal of Speaker Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, uh, the ongoing trials with Donald Trump, and all the effects that these things could have on the elections next year. We have three guests with us today. Two are joining us by Zoom, and one is here with me in the studio. In the studio is Nicholas Almanderas. He is an associate professor of law at the Maurer School of Law at IU. And joining us over Zoom are Marjorie Hershey, professor emeritus of political science at IU, and a, lo- a longtime friend of the show, and Abdul Hakim Shabazz, joining us from Indianapolis. He's the editor and publisher of indiepolitics.org host of the radio public affairs program, Politically Speaking. You can join us for the show by uh, sending your questions or comments to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send questions there. You can join us on the phone. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. Well, thank you all three for being here with us today. Um, I am going to start with Margie Hershey. She's been on the program several times, and this is a new topic for us. Margie, we haven't had to talk about kicking out the Speaker of the House before. So how significant is this? You know, the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And uh, unfortunately, um, we've lived in a lot of interesting times in recent years. So this is the first time in history of the Congress that a Speaker of the House has been removed from the speakership by his colleagues. Though it was basically inevitable from the moment this Congress came into session last January. So here's the backstory. Most U.S. House seats now are so gerrymandered by state legislatures that they've become safe for one party, more on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. So a House incumbent who runs for re-election is very likely to win. Then the real risk to that incumbent becomes the primary election within his or her own party. Turnout in a primary is generally pretty low, And those who vote in primaries tend to be highly partisan and often more extreme in their views than other voters. That's what motivates them to turn out in a low turnout primary. So these safe districts have led to the election of a number of extremists, most of them on the Republican side, most of them Trump followers. If the Republicans had a big majority in the House, uh, it wouldn't really matter. The extremists would be powerless because their party could pass bills without them. But the Republican majority in the House is really small. And if only five Republicans vote against their party leadership, then the Republicans become a minority. And it's kind of hard to put an exact number on the Republican extremists, but it's way more than five. So when the Republicans elected a speaker last January, that small group of extremists kept the majority's choice from winning. They finally caved when Kevin McCarthy agreed to a rule in which any one member of the majority could call for a vote to throw him out of office. And they have continued to control McCarthy throughout his speakership by threatening to use that rule. Now, somebody with less ambition than McCarthy would probably said, there's no way I'm going to continue as speaker under these conditions. But McCarthy really wanted to remain speaker. Uh, And finally, when we were about to face a government shutdown this past weekend, for which Republicans would probably be blamed, 
he broke with the extremists and was able to keep the government open with the help of democratic votes. And the extremists followed through on their threat. So this is now a situation like the dog that kept chasing the car and finally caught it and has no idea what to do with it. The party has no speaker. The House can't accomplish anything without a speaker. And the new deadline to avoid a government shutdown is just a little over a month away. Now, the big challenge here um, is that our constitutional design and our election rules make this a two-party system. And that means we absolutely need two functional parties. And Congress does not have that right now. And the question then is, how can we solve it? All right. Abdul, I want to go to you next because you, you know, you, you are an observer of Indiana politics. You also threw your hat in the ring and ran for mayor of Indianapolis. So when you think about uh, politics today, I mean, how do you read, how do you read this situation and, and what's the hope of getting back to some maybe more... Um, Civil? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. More, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, some more, some easier way to actually govern. Well, it's kind of like, uh, I agree with Marjorie when she talked about sort of the gerrymandering, because gerrymandering, for the most part, is what's gotten us here. In the old days, so to speak, it uh, used to be like, you know, say like in a, a Democrat-Republican district, 55-45. So while you had a majority, you still couldn't go too far off the, off the ledge, because you still needed a good chunk of the other side to win. Now with uh, most seats being like, you know, 80, 90% Republican or Democrat, you know, the only way to win is in a primary, and those folks in primary either win running further to the right or further to the left uh, than, than where the electorate is. And so this is why we end up sort of getting into this sort of hodgepodge of, of stuff right now. Um, I do think uh, that this is a problem of Kevin McCarthy's own making, because it, first of all, it took 15 times for him to become speaker number one, and every time he gave up something a little bit different, and this the old line from Proverbs, what should a man profit? Should he gain the world but lose his own soul? Or in this case, lose his own speakership. And that's what McCarthy did. And so now you have these, these Trump and Z's, as I call like Matt Gates and all the rest of these knuckleheads who are, who are in a nutshell almost sort of running almost sort of running the show right now. And in my opinion, even though I'm a small C conservative, to blame the Democrats on this is ridiculous because you know, Dem- Democrats are not the majority. Republicans are the majority. And so you know, here's here's where we are. Hopefully, uh, this will be sort of a, a wake up call to people like, hey, look, our politics has gotten way too polarized. Maybe we need to do something about this. And hopefully uh, this will be done within the next 40 days and change. But then again, with Jim Jordan um, and uh, Steve Scalise sort of ready for the job, but Donald Trump endorsing Jim Jordan after him flirting with the speakership, which, by the way, Donald Trump could not do because under Rule 26, I believe it is. You can't be speaker if you're facing a fel- if you've been indicted on felony charges. And Donald Trump's been indicted on how many? Like 91 felonies so far. So it's, it's, we, we live in interesting times. Let's Uh definitely put it that way. All right. (laughs) Nicholas, um, you know, you're, you're at the, the Maurer school, so you see the legal side of things and you're, I'm sure you're observing it from the political side of things too. You study democracy. So just, I guess I just need your observations. <laughs> um, yeah, well, a, a lot of what Marjorie and Abdul said, with, with I think, really, really captures it. And I, I think um, I, I'll just I'll add sort of two things. Um, one is when you got a really tiny majority, right? You need everyone, right? So you know they just they, they, right now the GOP is the majority. They can't just can't afford to have really many defections. They have four or five. So. There's always going to be – they're going to have to cater to to everyone, including the people out at the tails of their party. And then the other thing is um, just think about the different audiences people are playing to, right? So, so you've got McCarthy. Like why, why does McCarthy cut a deal to keep the government running for what, 40-some-odd days, right, which is appallingly short, right? We're going to be, be right back out here at, uh, right after Thanksgiving, I think. Um, uh, at least we get Halloween. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's because, well, he thinks either his voters are going to punish him or he wants to preserve the GOP majority or something like that, right? And then you have to think, well, what's Gates and those people? What's, what's the audience they're playing to? Who, who is their audience? Who, who, what do they want? And maybe that's the, that's the way I, I think about things and try and untangle, like, why, why are the different tails wagging the dog? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what di- does Matt Gates and his eight group of eight, I guess it was eight of them that yeah. voted, what do they what do they want? Yeah, yeah, right. Money. <laughs> money money? Money, money, money and fundraising. That they are they are not serious politicians. Matt Gates 
I mean, I thought I was a big, uh, I thought I was on an ego trip, but my ego trip is nothing compared to what Matt Gates is, because he's always on television. Uh, the day that uh, they got rid of the speaker, he sent out a fundraising uh, email, because I get like a couple of them. So the, the they're, they're not serious contenders. They just want money and fame and attention. And it's sort of working, right? Matt Gates is the name we know of, of the eight, right? And we're, we're pretty plugged in. Um, uh, yeah, right. Uh, go ahead. So, so, is, so Abdul weighed in there. Do you agree with that? Is that um, what they want? I mean, I, I hesitate to venture into the motivations of Matt Gates. He and I uh, both both Florida guys, but uh, you know, we don't know each other well. It's a big state. Um, uh, but I mean, this is definitely elevating his profile. He's definitely getting what he wants, right? Or getting policy. Such. I mean, I, I think this comes back to Marjorie's point about primary voters, right? Do do the voters in in Gates's district are they going to punish him in eighteen months or so? for perhaps triggering a government shutdown, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. And I don't know if he's that worried about that, um, either because he's got a lot, a lot of fallback options or they're, they're on board with them. But I think that's the big question to ask. Marjorie, I, I have to ask because, you know, I'm kind of a moderate guy. And why can't the moderates come together and figure out a way to settle on somebody they, they can both sides agree on and move forward? Bob, it's just a matter of numbers. Um, as long as the Republicans hold the narrow majority that they've got, uh, there's really no way that they can afford to ignore virtually anybody who is more extreme than they are. They have to placate those folks in order to keep their majority. That's one reason why George Santos is still in the House right now. I mean, good grief, you know, the guy has even lied about his own name. But the Republican conference can't consider, even consider kicking him out because that loses one Republican seat. And, you know, you do that and then maybe there are a couple of unfortunate illnesses and whomp, the Republicans have lost the majority. I think another big challenge here, um, I mean, Matt Gates is simply a Trump mini-me. Trump has spawned a number of these folks and they've learned that You really don't have to have any consistency. You don't even have to state the truth when you're asked about it. You just have to know how to get media coverage and then use that to raise money. But the problem is that of these eight, actually there are a possible total of 18 or 20, they don't agree with one another as to what it is that they want. Some of them want the Congress to go back to what's called the regular order, which we can talk about, um, and they hate to see the continuing resolutions that have been passed for budgets for so long now. Others of them really are, like Matt Gates, kind of policy-free. You know, they they just want the microphone. They don't much care what goes into it. What is the regular order? Okay, you really want to ask? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> this is all about parliamentary <laughs> rules and regulation, to, I think, today as it is. So, yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> the way Congress traditionally used to work is that the budget process would go forward by a series of committees, each dealing with one of 12 budget areas. There was a separate budget bill for defense, a separate budget bill for each other policy area. Those committees were the subject matter specialists. They were the ones who knew about that budget. They'd been dealing with it for years. So they would go over that budget bill with a fine-tooth comb. They would give it to subcommittees to look at it, giving it further scrutiny. And then finally, that committee would put that budget for that particular policy area on the House floor for a vote. And then after that, the people from the Senate in their committees would take a look at it. And then there would be a conference committee to negotiate. And then it would go to the president. That's the regular order. What happened is that as the House and the Senate further began to polarize, um, they uh, the party leaders were basically given the power step in and uh, ignore the committee system and basically put together an omnibus budget bill that might have often been um, not just hundreds but thousands of pages long in which people had to vote on it literally before they had read it 
um, because the only alternative was to kick the can down the road through a continuing resolution and say, well, we can't cope with this now. We'll deal with it another month or another six weeks. Um, that's a really bad way to run a country. And uh, it's been standard for the past 20 years. So some of these folks who are in the, the sort of Gates crowd are saying, we won't vote for anybody for speaker until we stop this continuing resolution stuff and stop the omnibus bills and go back to the regular order and give sincere, detailed consideration to each policy area budget. Um, others of them really couldn't care less about the regular order and just uh, want anti-abortion riders or they want anti-transgender people riders or something else. Abdul, I'm really interested in your opinion on this because, you know, you, like I, I mentioned before, you stuck your toe in and ran for mayor of Indianapolis on the Republican side. Um, you know, if you were if you are a member of Congress right, right now in the Republican Party, what would you be doing? What would you be trying to, to get the party to do? Oh, if I was a, if I was a member of Congress right now, I'd be running for the Senate to get out of the House as humanly possible with all the <laughs> dysfunction going on. Because the problem, and, and Margie's right on the whole thing about regular order, because the problem with kicking the can down the road continuously is that eventually you run out of road and there's nowhere else to, 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 to kick the can. Uh, if I were in Congress right now, I'd be one of those sort of those moderate R's like, hey, guys, we need to pull this together because this is ridiculous. This is not what we were sent here for. We're uh, and if you're in a competitive district, uh, you're even more sensitive because they're about uh, I want to say about maybe 18 or so uh Republicans who are in uh, districts that uh, Joe Biden won. So they're going to be on the hook. So my, my thing is like, look, we need to just figure out a way to do this and, and come together. And I just build a, I'd build a coalition of the, will, of the willing because you're never going to satisfy the far right or the far left. So I just say, pardon my French, I know it's public radio, to hell with them. Let's all in the middle work together to get this done and we'll, we'll do it ourselves. Well, when you look at the Indiana, uh, the Indiana contingent that's out there, uh, they all voted with McCarthy. They were not among the eight. But, you know, how do how do they line up in terms of, you know, the the current Republican Party? Um, I think I think uh, Indiana's uh, is also also part of that gerrymandering. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Larry Bichon, uh, Victoria. Now, I, I want to say this. Victoria Sparks, who's the, who's the fifth congressional district, which is just north uh, of Indianapolis, uh, was sort of on the fence as to whether she would vote for McCarthy, because she voted to uh, not do not to do the motion to do the motion to vacate, but not to vote to get rid of McCarthy as speaker. So she's kind of having a sort of both both ways. But whether it is you know, Jim Banks, Rudy Yacom, Greg Pence, uh, Aaron Halchin, Larry, Larry Bouchon, and Victoria Sparks, uh, they're they're all in safe districts, but they're also uh, sort of reasonable because you can't get too far off of, off of a ledge here. Otherwise, you're going to be out of office, and also, and they're also walking a fine line too, because they got to deal with primary challengers as well as a general electorate as well. Okay, I want to give our contact information again. You can reach us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also call us at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one, or you can call us toll free at eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. We're talking today with Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at IU, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, the editor and publisher of IndiePolitics.org, host of the public, uh, the radio public affairs program, Politically Speaking, and Nicholas Amanderas, who is an associate professor of law at the Maurer School of Law at IU. And we also have Joe Wren in the building. Well, hello. So Thanks for Joe, having me. Absolutely. So, Joe, we've covered yeah. some ground here, but I know there, there are plenty of other topics we can yeah. Um, you know, hi, Marjorie. It's Joe in the studio. You know, I was wondering, there have been multiple you know, instances of this potential government shutdown. So is our government just delaying the inevitable? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I think that there's just no question that as long as, um, well, let me start from the beginning. This all comes back to us. It comes back to the voters. The Republicans aren't nuts in Congress. They are the way they are because that's the way they get reelected. And the way they get reelected is by appealing to the voters in primaries. And uh, really, the only way we're going to change this in the end is by changing the voters in primaries. 
we're going to have to get people who are more moderate and more inclined to protected democracy to come out and vote in primaries so that they can have more of a say in who it is who represents their district. Until that happens, we're going to have just enough extremists so that in a situation where we're closely divided by party at the national level, um, these extremists are going to be able to call the shots. I don't think that's what anybody wants other than a few of those extremists, but it's really up to us. It's the old pogo problem. We have seen the enemy and they is us. Nicholas, what's this mean for democracy? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, we only have uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. half an hour to go. Yeah, I mean, Marjorie was so succinct. Um, um, I, I'll make one observation, okay. a tiny one, uh, which I, I think, and someone should correct me if I'm wrong, but um, just back to the regular order, committees tended to be relatively homogenous, right? They tended to kind of agree. Like, if you're all agricultural legislators, you're on the agricultural committee, you all want, are from agricultural districts, maybe like a bunch in Indiana, um, you all want that to do well, right? And so you got, you got something to compromise and rally around. Throw that to the whole floor, you get a lot more disagreement on that sort of thing. So that, that's like an upshot of having, you can call them specialists, but you can also kind of call them like really interested parties who have a niche they really care about. Um, so maybe it's a positive story for interest group politics because something like interest groups want to keep the lights on and the trains running. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've got a couple of different people who are uh, have sort of thrown their hat in the ring. So <laughs> is the next speaker going to be one of these two, Jim Jordan or, or uh, Steve Scalise? Nicholas, what do you think? Um, oh, geez. Is that, uh, is that out of your expertise? <laughs> oh, it's a little – I mean <laughs> predicting what the the party – right? We, we, kind of going back, right? They need to win basically all of the Republicans onto their side, right? Very close to it or persuade some Democrats coming over. I don't see Jim Jordan doing that. I don't really know if Scalise can do that. Right? That would be the balancing act, right? Could you, could you maybe for like – imagine we think Scalise is the one who's going to reach across the aisle, which would be – I, I think, and, and I think Marjorie can really correct me wrong, like pretty unprecedented uh, or pretty unusual. But if they did that, right, they'd have to get enough Ds to come over that the Rs they lose would balance out, right? And that strikes me as pretty, pretty unlikely for both of them. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Jordan can do it because he'll uh, be appeasing the other side. Or maybe if they don't care about policy, they just wanted McCarthy's head. Mm-hmm. Marjorie? I think what that we know for sure is that any of the announced candidates at the moment are more right-wing than Kevin McCarthy. And um, that doesn't mean that one of the four who are announced is going to become speaker. Steve Scalise is fighting a serious illness right now, and um, that limits um, the chance that while he's being treated for that, that he would be able to be an effective speaker. Jim Jordan started as a bomb thrower. Um, I've heard a lot of members on the Republican side in the last few days saying, oh, he's a changed man. He's, um, he's, he's been domesticated. He's learned how to work the system instead of just throw things at it. Um, I think anybody who's heard him at the head of the committees that he's chaired for the Republicans would sort of wonder exactly what the, what the criteria are for being domesticated. But he is a very articulate spokesperson for the Republican view. And so I think he definitely has the advantage. And one of the big advantages he has is that when the 900-pound gorilla, which is Donald Trump, weighs in on a speakership fight, um, there are a number of Republicans, because of the fact that their primary constituencies love Donald Trump, have to follow what he says. Yeah, that I'm going right. uh, yeah. to respectfully disagree with Margie uh, on, on Jim Jordan, because Jim Jordan is also heading up the impeachment inquiry. And so for that, I don't think he'll get any Democrat votes uh, for speaker. So literally, he would have to get literally almost all the Republican votes uh, to win and win big. And if you take the fact that Steve Scalise, although he has some health issues, um, I would say is a little bit more reasonable and reasonable being a very relative term here. I think <laughs> Scalise has a much better shot at winning if you, if, you, if you bring on the whole chamber. But like I said, and mainly because of Jim Jordan and the impeachment inquiry that he's doing right now on Joe Biden, which is basically people looking for evidence, looking for reasons to impeach a president as opposed to high crimes and misdemeanors that have already been spelled out. 
Let's just say this, Abdul Hakim, if you know Jim Jordan, uh, one of the potential replacements, you know, he's been known to support Trump. So, what would it mean for Trump's candidacy if he were to become speaker? Um, I don't think it means that much. I mean, it shows that uh, Trump has influence, or like you know, inside sort of the party apparatus. But if I was Donald Trump right now, I'd be more concerned about losing my businesses and uh, you know going to prison than worrying about the Speaker of the House right now. Because I could, you could just imagine. No, if if Donald Trump, you know, just imagine this: Donald Trump in prison with Secret Service protection. <laughs> I think it's really almost impossible to see anything affecting Trump's chance of the presidency. He's really his support is so completely baked in. I've never seen a series of approval disapproval polls for a political figure in the United States that vary by no more than about one to two percent, in other words, within the margin of error of the poll. People have already made their minds up about Donald Trump. There's just nothing that he or anybody else can do to change that. Nicholas, his legal problems are, you know, well documented. Can any of these have any impact on him being president of the United States? Um, the, I, the answer that kind of picks up on something Abdul Hakim said, which is like we live in this unprecedented situation, right? Um, so I think the answer is like no, like technically, right? So unless voters were like, you know what, this is a bridge too far or whatever. But I mean we – you know, if, if, if he goes to Georgia jail, there's nothing – in the Constitution, there's nothing in law that says, oh, he can't be president of on the federal system, right? So, like, technically, this can all happen. Now, I'm sure, you know, if we look at the, the way the framers' system is set up, like, well, you would just impeach that person, right? But that would require a supermajority of, you know, the, the Congress to, to choose to impeach him because he was guilty and – you know that so so it's all it's all politics all the way down on this one. So with this weird situation playing out in real life, where we have a set of legal things happening, and they have like maybe ramifications for the political things, but nothing direct. I, I think it was Marjorie said it all comes down to the voters, mm-hmm. right? Or a party revolt. It would take a maybe a Republican party revolt. Okay. So I'm still I'm kind of stuck on this because I guess I want to be, but. I, why didn't any Democrats come to McCarthy's aid so that Congress could continue to operate? Well, I would say they couldn't trust him. Uh-huh. And I would say uh, where McCarthy made his biggest mistake was when he was on the Sunday morning talking head shows and he blamed the Democrats um, for, for whatever issue he was having at the time. And if I was a Democrat, like, hey, you want my help and you're going to uh, badmouth me this way, okay, fine. We'll show you. Well, we'll just all vote no because we we have we have nothing to lose because we can't trust you. And and in and in Washington D.C., just like in in politics or law or any profession, all, at the end of the day, all you have is your reputation. And if once it, once that's gone and people can't trust you, forget about it. That's absolutely right. And I think the the real challenge here for the Republican Party is that it has been moved so far to the right by voters. I know Republicans would disagree with that and claim the Democrats have moved further to the left. But if you take a look at the actual platforms of the parties, that is really not true. The Republican Party has moved so far to the right that in order to be successful as a Republican, you have to make yourself less successful in the general election by going further to the extreme than most voters are comfortable with. And uh, that's happened over and over again in terms of McCarthy. Um, He had not been trustworthy with Democrats. Goodness, he hadn't been trustworthy with Republicans either. Um, So there's really no benefit to Democrats to giving McCarthy any benefits or giving the next Republican speaker any benefits because the chances are he'll sell them out to the right wing. And and even if he was like committed, like imagine he's perfectly trustworthy, like what's he going to offer them, right? So we, we kind of talked about this, right? He's got to do enough to appease enough on the right side, but then he's got to do enough to to bring some Democrats over. And I don't even know what he was offering. He had done, right? He'd made all his concessions kind of that got him in the situation mm-hmm. to the right. What What's the offer to the Dems? And if the offer is maybe we'll keep the government open for 45 days, that might not be that compelling. It, it seems just... The things I've read and heard, it seems like Ukraine might have been a, a talking point because Ukraine was left out of the last 
budget, but McCarthy was a strong supporter of Ukraine. Is that and something else? And something else to think about too. If I could uh, just interrupt for a second here, uh, Kevin McCarthy's issues, in a nutshell, reflect a long line of Republican speakers who also had issues. Whether it was Newt Gingrich back in the late '90s, uh, Denny Hastert, who was from my home state of Illinois, who had his you know, alleged child molester issues, you know, Paul Ryan, John Boehner. Or Republicans are good at throwing bombs at the national level, but but they don't seem to be that. They don't seem, at least in the House Representatives part, that figured out the governing part. Because you know you can, you can lead, but can you manage? Right. It's a it's just a really serious problem that, um, it, in many ways, the leaders we've had fairly recently have shown that they can get away with uh, demonstrating their expertise at campaigning, without having to demonstrate their expertise at governing. They uh, are able to call upon the increasing party polarization in the electorate in which we've seen more and more uh, people who hate the other party more than they love their own party. And so we could see that the Speaker Pro Tem over the weekend, one of the first things he did was to tell former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, that she had to vacate the office that she had been given um, in on Capitol Hill. That's a really incredibly petty thing to do, especially since former Speaker Pelosi was um, at Dianne Feinstein's funeral at the time. But uh, it shows that the main way that Republicans can get together is by sticking it to Democrats. And uh, that is not a recipe for reaching across the aisle, to put it mildly. Of course, we're talking about this on a much larger scale, but what do, can any of you speak on, on behalf of what local officials worry about or react when something like this happens? Local governments in city or, 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 or counties, how, how, what, what are they thinking right now? Or even states. Or state, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do know for a fact that if the, if the government shuts down, I mean, you talk about uh, military people not getting paid. You're talking about uh, you know, first responders and you know, federal grants. So if you're at the state level or the local level, you got to be wondering, sort of shaking your head, like how in 250 years did we get here? You know, what 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 is wrong with the American experiment? Do we have a government that just doesn't seem to function? Now, government has always had its its, its issues in the past, so I want to be careful not to romanticize the past a little bit a little bit too much. But 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 at least back then, you know, if, if these guys are going to do something, they're going to take each other. Uh, ah, here we go. Some days I wish we'd have Alexander uh, Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Just go out and shoot each other and get this over with so we can get real people in office. (laughs) I think that parties are not just individuals sticking together. They're also a party label. They have a brand. And one of the things a party has to do to be successful is to protect that brand. It has to not trash it as the result of the activities of some of its own members. Under normal circumstances, George Santos would have been sanctioned by other Republicans who would say, this is not helping us. Uh, And governors who are Republicans would not want to be associated with that when they're campaigning again. But because of that close balance between the Republicans and the Democrats, they can't afford to protect the party's brand as much as they used to be able to. And that's a real problem for Republican and uh, to some extent Democratic governors and mayors because they're a part of that brand. At the local level, you can insulate yourself to some extent. You can say, well, those are federal issues. We don't deal with that here. Um, On the other hand, um, people start to develop a certain sense of scent about a party nationally, and after a while, that begins to affect their partisanship, that affects their state-level voting, too. We saw that in the South with respect to the change in the Democratic's platform about civil rights and the change in the Republican platform about civil rights. It took a while. But the change in the party's national brand slowly began to affect the party's brand at the state level. We're talking about politics and all the uh, all the strangeness that's going on these days and politics and governing with Marjorie Hershey, Abdul Hakim Shabazz and Nicholas Almendares. Um, Nicholas is an associate <coughs> professor of law at the Maurer School of Law at IU. Abdul Hakim Shabazz is editor and publisher of IndyPolitics.org and host of 
uh, radio public affairs program called Politically Speaking. And, of course, Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at IU and a frequent contributor to our show. If you have questions or comments, you can still call us, 812-855-0812 or 855 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. And you can also send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I, I've sort of asked this question before, but Nicholas, you uh, were at one point the program director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia Law School. I'm, I'm just concerned about this whole, uh, I think uh, Abdul called it the experiment of democracy. How, you know, how fragile is our democracy at this point? Oh, wow. Um... Yeah, no, and, and and of course, there at the Car Center, we solved all the problems of democracy, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I left. So all these new ones are not my fault. Um, yeah, um, uh, traditionally, American democracy has been seen as very strong, right? Um, compared to new democracies, newer democracies, and and democracies that have like really deep intractable rifts. Now, of course, we had a civil war about those intractable rifts, but that was that was a while ago, right? Um, and our institutions seem to be pretty strong through the checks and balances and maybe – and maybe like the – so the good bad story is nothing gets done but nothing gets done and, you know, the, the place is still standing afterwards because sometimes when you get too much done, you, you demolish it. But it, it's, it's tough now, right? It's tough. And it, I think what has been exposed in I guess past five, ten years maybe is that it's kind of people all the way down, right? So I, I think – a lot of times outside observers – and this is this is something that people, when you when you get them in law school for a couple of years, they kind of start realizing. It's like – it's not like there's like an automatic rule, right? It's not like, oh, you did this and like, you know, I don't know, like you magically get deleted from office or, you know, a bunch of goons show up to get you. Like, like those are people. Those are decisions. Those are decisions made by courts and judges and, you know, and, and voters, right? And there's this constant dance between what we want, you know, law to do or what we even expect. We could call them institutions. But institutions are just run by people. Mm-hmm. Right, and they're making decisions. So I, I think we we've all become more attentive to the idea that it's just these soft, mushy norms, you know. And even even what democracy means is really contested. And I think um, there's something really interesting. That's a lot of like what my work is about. And there's like a really crass way. Like some people, we're a republic, not democracy. And that that's just annoying and nonsense, and no one should really credit that. But like like but there are real real debates to be had. Um, and maybe maybe we've started having them, and maybe we're going to have them in a more robust, salient way. But it it, it feels really fragile, and I think it's just because we're relying on the decency of people and the fact that we're all kind of in this together. And if we don't feel like the other people have that same feeling, so I need to ask you, what's one question you would love to see debated at this point? Oh. Um, I really should have had an answer for that, yeah. uh, um, right, right, given that I teed that up. Um, I mean, so I spent a lot of my time, um, and this is a little deliberate, talking about what we want courts and law to do. So I think maybe the the if we want, we, and we kind of had a little bit of this a couple of years ago, and then it kind of fizzled. Maybe like we as a people need to see like, okay, what do we want to try and send off to guys in robes with in marble buildings? And what do we want to hash out in a kind of ugly maybe sound by the way ourselves. And if maybe we had a better sense of that, that might help a lot. Okay. Uh, I think what Nicholas yeah. is saying is um, um, something that has been true for really a very long time in the United States. You know, we, we have to think back to the fact that even during the Revolutionary War, there were a good chunk of people, probably at least a third, who didn't want the United States to be independent of Britain. Um, we don't all agree. It's inevitable. And the bigger and the more diverse we get, uh, the more disagreement there is. And that's fine. There's nothing the matter with disagreement as long as we can find ways to work through it peacefully. But in the last few years, what we've seen is that underlying disagreement, even about the very principles of democracy, of freedom of speech, of very bedrock principles, are not universally accepted. They are in the abstract. If you ask people, do you believe in freedom of speech? Everybody says yes. If you ask people, do you believe in freedom of speech for um, terrorists or uh, for communists or for socialists or for anybody you personally don't like? 
you get a certain percentage of people that is not so very small that says, well, uh, maybe not. Maybe that's taking things too far. And given that there has always been a certain level of anti-democratic small d sentiment um, within American public opinion, what we've had recently is some pretty vocal leaders who have given rise to the sense that this is an okay thing to say, that this is a legitimate view to hold, that it's okay to say that an election was stolen when there's no evidence of it, that it's okay to say that the media are fake news. Um, these are things that we um, have not had to deal with as much before. And there's one major figure who has been in large part responsible for that. Um, I think that that's a problem that we need to address, that when we have major public figures who are basically charging that democratic institutions are not legitimate, that they are not effective, they're not efficient. We need to ask ourselves whether or not we need some re-education as a public. And I, I, I tend to agree with, with Marjorie on that point. Also, too, uh, with respect to uh, the 800-pound the grill in the room, Donald Trump, when his lawyers uh, basically say, well, his defense and election interference was he was just doing his job as president, so you can't indict him. I was like, what in the world? This is ridiculous. But also, too, <laughs> I, I think it's symbolic of a couple things. Number one, uh, the the it used to be we all got our news sources from we didn't we may, we, not, we may not have necessarily agreed on the news but we all got our news from the same place so we may we we all got the same facts so we may not agree with what those facts mean but at least we all got the same facts now with so many news organizations being siloed whether it's Fox News or MSNBC the Wall Street Journal New York Times or, or, or podcasts or any knucklehead with no journalism training whatsoever can start offering up opinions. Uh, we tend to seek out those news sources uh, that tend to justify our world point of view. And so when we have all those different silos out there, we can't necessarily agree on you know, what we should do. And also, number two, I'm going to keep this in mind as well, is a lot of people just don't think that government is relevant uh, to their lives anymore. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 15 years. I have to remind her, sweetie, did you go vote today? No, it doesn't matter. Like, yes, it does matter. So go vote. Because if you vote, first of all, you vote, it keeps me employed. So number one, so please go vote. <laughs> um, number number two, the more more important issue is just simply we, we need to make government a lot more relevant in the lives of regular people, because when, when the government is when they think government is relevant, then they get a lot more participatory. Right now, the only people think government is relevant are people like us and, and quote unquote special interests, which I hate using that word because everybody's a special interest if you think about it. So. Where do we go now? I don't know if we've gotten that to that point yet, but what, what happens next? What should we look for? What is next is the question. <laughs> From a micro standpoint, uh, let's go with the micro first and then maybe the <laughs> macro. So what's, what's next with the Speaker of the House issue? Anybody? Uh, my, money is, my money is right now Stephen Scalise gets it. Okay. But, yeah. but then again, but that could also change tomorrow. But, oh, yeah. But, but he's going to have a hard to govern, you know, rowdy group to try and wrangle, right? Unless, unless they just wanted to do something specific to, to McCarthy. But I don't think that's likely. Margie? I think Abdul is probably right. Um, I think that it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Scalise to be able to manage that job. But, you know, in addition to the simple problems that the job has generally. Another option, of course, although this is, again, going to be um, eliminated by the fact that the Republicans have such a narrow majority, is to simply kick Matt Gates out of the caucus or the conference on the Republican side. The conference is the group of all members of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. Um, you, you can't throw somebody out of the Congress without evidence of ethical violations, although um, I, <laughs> that's an option for Mr. Gates as well. But uh, you can kick them out of the Republican conference, and that will reduce by one the number of rabble-rousers that the Republicans have to deal with in that vote. Well, what? so then, you know, jo back to Joe's question from a bigger perspective, Marjorie, you've talked about 
it's kind of up to the voters. Is that where we go from here? You know, I think what somebody could conclude after listening to us all cover a, a whole lot of ground here is that everything's a mess and that we really ought to just shrug our shoulders and, and go back to doing the laundry, you know, and that's perfectly understandable. What we need is a place to start. Um, we need to say, this may not be our biggest problem, but maybe this is one way in to our problem. And for me, that comes down to education. Um, it comes down to helping people see that in a democracy, there are valid viewpoints other than their own. Um, we've long had partisan media in the United States. In fact, the, the network phase that Abdul was referring to was relatively short. It was the mid-1900s when we had network television that in order to make a profit had to appeal to a huge audience and that meant not being partisan. But when the founders were around, uh, partisan media were the only ones we had. Um, the difference was that involvement in public life helps people understand better that there are views other than their own. That was one of the things Thomas Jefferson talked a lot about, um, was the, the educating likelihood of, of democracy and democratic participation. And we need a lot more of that. We need people to be able to become part of one another's lives. And for me, that's the only way that's gonna happen is through local level civic volunteerism, civic participation, where people can get to know one another face to face. It's a lot harder to see somebody as the devil when you're talking to them individually and you hear about their kids and, and their lives and, and um, what issues they deal with that are similar to yours. So, hey Margie, you bring up an interesting point on that, because uh, number one, I think, uh, first of all, we need to uh, really increase our civics education in this country, number one. And number two, uh, back in the old days, uh, you know, we had Congress actually lived in Washington, D.C., and they got to know they got to church together, kids played basketball, kids went to school, spouses did things mm -hmm. together as well. And it's, so it's very hard to demonize, like you said, Margie, it's hard to demonize people who you know personally face to face. But now I was like, I need to go back home to my district and listen to my constituents. Hell, you got Zoom. You can talk to them there. Yeah. So there's no date or anything we're looking at right now for a nomination. Oh, for, for a new speaker? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think they'll probably want it. They're going to fight out the next week, yeah. right? Because okay. every every week or two they waste is less legislative time. Right. Um, Nicholas, oh. we, we had a question from uh, our audience, and I'm going to pose it to you first. Dennis asks – is it time for us to just rewrite the Constitution and get more input from the people? Oh, um, I mean, th yeah, there's a long list. And, and we get a whole center at Mauer that talks about constitutional design, right? There's a long list of constitutional changes that I think we might really want to do. Um, it's really hard to do just the the, con the U.S. Constitution is really like, like hard to amend procedurally. But oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there, there's – we all have kind of a laundry list that we, we secretly keep in a tour that no one we, we don't usually tell people about. So, yeah. but to amend the Constitution, you would take political will. As oh, well, like right? immense, almost incalculable political will. We've in fact just sort of done it quietly. But like the last time I really did it was the Civil War. So, um, <laughs> or like did it kind of informally with Franklin D. Roosevelt. So it takes like that kind of level of political will. Mm -hmm. So. And also, please keep in mind, too, gentlemen, that the last constitutional amendment uh, took like almost, what, 200 years to pass? The one about congressional pay raises? Oh, yeah. You can't no. give them all. We can all agree it on was that. like the last one. Yeah, exactly. So We've got just three minutes to go. Uh, Abdul, I wanted to ask you because, you know, Marjorie talked about the idea of civic involvement. And, you know, I've referenced your run for mayor of Indianapolis a couple of times. You, to, uh, you had to get out there and talk to lots and lots of people. I mean, when you think about the idea of getting involved in civic involvement, how likely do you think that would be to, you know, in, increase our chances to get out of this in some reasonable way? Well, my thing is civic engagement is work. It takes work to be an elect, to be an informed elect, to be an informed citizen. And you can't just, uh, like I tell my uh, students, 
that you, you can't just take what somebody says and, you know, at face value, you got to do your, do your own research and do your own homework. And I think if we, we encourage, like I said, we, we increase civic uh, education, you know, in high schools and colleges, I think that goes a long way uh, to resolving our issues and resolving our differences. I, I really do. So we just need a lot more civic engagement. I can say, luckily, Indiana uh, made, it, made civic uh, education mandatory uh, in high school. So hopefully we'll, we'll be on the right track. Hopefully. From your observations. Well, oh, go ahead, Margie. We have to be careful, though, not to throw yet another thing on our teachers. Um, that we're, we're asking them to, to do everything but change diapers, although maybe they do that as well. Um, this is, I think the participation itself is vitally important, and you don't always get that in a large classroom. Kids are not always um, encouraged to participate, understandably, in a large classroom. Um, I really think that it requires direct participation because that's how we get to know one another and get out of our silos and learn a little bit about the fact that we're not the, the only interest that exists. Nicholas, last question for you. We've got less than a minute to go. Your students at the law school, how concerned are they about what's going on politically and with democracy today? Um, when they take my class halfway through, very. Before then, I think they, they kind of keep their heads down in, in, in the books. But, you know, we're – I think law school is a good place to do this civil education at a kind of much later level. Mm -hmm. OK. We are out of time. I, I really thank uh, – want to thank all three of our guests today for participating in this very difficult discussion about what's going on in our democracy today. Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at IU. Abdul Hakim Shabazz, editor and publisher of IndiePolitics.org and host of the radio public affairs program, Politically Speaking, and Nicholas Almendaris, the associate professor of law at the Maurer School of Law. For Joe Wren, thanks for being here, Joe. Thank you. And for uh, Nathan Moore, our producer and engineer, Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.